This is Bobby Guy with the 10-Minute Health BizCast. This is album three, track three. Today, we're going to talk about the modern history of U.S. healthcare. To understand our system, we need context. So we're going to start with a short comparison of the four types of healthcare systems around the world, and then we're going to talk about how the current U.S. system has evolved. For comparative healthcare, I want to make sure I give credit where credit is due. The idea that you can divide the world into four types of systems, and much of our discussion about comparative healthcare, comes from the book The Healing of America by T.R. Reid. It's a great book with lots of insight. So what are the four systems? It all comes down to who controls the payers and who controls the providers. First, there's the British system, which is a single government payer and a single government provider system. The payer and all the providers are part of the government. This is Britain's National Health Service. Second, there's the Canadian system, where there's a single government payer, but the providers are all private. In this system, Everyone gets health insurance through the government, and the government negotiates the payment terms with all the private providers. Third, there's the German system, where both the payers and the providers are all private. There's a catch, though. The payers are basically nonprofit charities that patients get insured by through their employers, and the government tightly regulates medical services and fees. So the government has significant control over cost, like in the British and Canadian systems. But the key is, in the German system, payers and providers are private. Fourth, there's the out-of-pocket model, which is how healthcare is done almost everywhere outside the developed world. No established healthcare payment system, so to get healthcare, you have to pay out-of-pocket. And if you don't have money, you don't have healthcare. So those are the four main systems. What's America? It's a mashup of all four. Really? Actually, yes. Let's think about it. The Veterans Administration and Native American Health Service are the British system. The federal government employs the payers and the providers. Then we have Medicare insurance for the elderly and the federal state Medicaid insurance system for the poor. These are the Canadian system, with public insurance paying private providers. Then we have the private market of employer-sponsored health insurance for much of our working population. This is the German system with private insurers and private providers, although most U.S. insurers are investor-owned and the government does not mandate price controls. Finally, for those without health insurance, we have the out-of-pocket model like the developing world. If you can't pay, you don't get health care, unless you can find charity care. Luckily, in the first world, we have more charity care. So those are the typical choices in the world of health care. Healthcare systems fall pretty neatly into who controls the payment and who controls the providers. You know what's universal about all the systems? Every country makes fun of its own healthcare system. No one loves their system. And each one has advantages and disadvantages. The English, Canadian, and German systems have better distribution than the U.S., but they have less innovation. They also have waiting lists or big bureaucracy, and they often run deficits. People with means often go outside the system to get the best care. In the U.S., by contrast, we have innovation and top care opportunities for those with means, but we have very uneven distribution. 
because we have many overlapping and underlapping systems and it's very confusing. And our safety net is filled with holes. So now, let's talk about how we got here. How did we get the Great American Mashup? We got the American system through an accident of history. Employer-sponsored healthcare in the U.S. became very popular during World War II. Why? With many of the young men overseas at war and a need for labor, what you'd usually do is offer high wages to attract talent. But we had price and wage controls during the war and rationing. I've still got my grandmother's ration book from late in the war. U.S. employers couldn't compete by inflating wages because it was illegal. Instead, the carrot U.S. employers used was to offer benefits, and one of the main benefits was health insurance. Health insurance became commonplace as a part of employment packages during the war and afterward, and that's how we got employer-sponsored health care in the U.S. This is the accident of history. A couple of other developments also dramatically shaped healthcare following the war. In 1946, Congress passed the Hill-Burton Act, which provided construction funds for hospitals, nursing homes, and healthcare facilities across the country, in exchange for them providing certain levels of charity care. The Hill-Burton Act was to healthcare what the rural electrification program was to rural life a couple of decades earlier. It brought modernity to the countryside. As a result of the Hill-Burton Act, hospitals were built in rural areas all around the U.S., mostly by counties and by nonprofits, and they became sources of local pride as well as often becoming the biggest employers in rural counties. Think of Hill-Burton as a way of making sure that healthcare was geographically accessible throughout the U.S., and making sure that, for the poor, healthcare was financially accessible through charity care. This brings us to the 1960s and the Great Society programs under President Johnson. Healthcare costs continued to grow over the decades, and with health insurance being provided mainly by employers, we had a major dilemma. Those past working age didn't have insurance, and many were unable to afford healthcare. So, welcome to Medicare, the government insurance program that pays for healthcare coverage for the elderly. At the same time, we also needed a better charity care system for the poor in the U.S., and we met this with the Medicaid program, where states and the federal government would work together to provide health insurance for the economically disadvantaged. Both programs dramatically increased demand for health care in the U.S. by making health insurance available to large populations who previously couldn't afford it. The result was a rapid expansion of health care facilities and health care services across the country over the next several decades to meet the demand. So let me summarize where we are. The primary way that we've handled healthcare in the U.S. is by having employers provide healthcare benefits and then having a safety net for the elderly, the unemployed, and the uninsurable. As a society, our core belief has been that vibrant companies in a competitive environment create job opportunities for our citizens, and health insurance has been tied to those jobs. If you create a vibrant economy with lots of jobs, you have health insurance for lots of people. Over the decades since the 1960s, though, what we've seen is a divergence between our core principle of employer-sponsored health insurance and the reality of paying for health care. What happened? Our health care capabilities have grown dramatically, and as our capabilities have grown, so have the costs. With enough money, we can now cure and heal things with treatments that were inconceivable 60, 80, or 100 years ago. 
In addition, our life expectancy has increased dramatically. Ever wonder where the retirement age of 65 came from? 65 was first proposed as a retirement age in Germany by the Kaiser in the late 1800s. And the German retirement programs weren't very expensive for the government, because back then, almost no one lived to be 65. People now live much longer. So our healthcare capabilities have grown, we can save many of the sickest, and life expectancy has increased. Before we talk about the implications, stop and take a moment to contemplate what I've just said. If we were talking about success in healthcare, we just named it. Better capabilities, saving the sickest, and longer life expectancy. Compared to 80 years ago, where we are now is an incredible advance. We need to recognize this and applaud the advances of healthcare. So we're winning. But now for the implications. It is tremendously more expensive. And as healthcare has become more expensive, the employer-provided system of healthcare in the U.S. has begun to break down over the last several decades. With the cost skyrocketing, employers can't afford to provide platinum health insurance policies to all of their employees. In addition, we have more gig workers and part-time workers who aren't eligible for employer-provided health insurance. So over the decades since the 1960s, health insurance has become less and less a guaranteed benefit of employment. By the 1990s, the American system had become a patchwork of many overlapping and underlapping healthcare payment methods. We had some insurance provided by employers. We had some provided by the federal government with Medicare for the elderly, which is growing dramatically as life expectancy increases. We had some provided by the states with Medicaid for the underprivileged, but in more than 50 different forms depending on your state or district. We also had some bought privately by individuals and families, and we had some individuals and families who were entirely uninsured. As I mentioned before, we also have the VA and the Native American Health Service, two systems of government-socialized medicine in the U.S. I won't go into this now, but let's note that no one holds either of those up as a model of good health care that should be more broadly adopted. Finally, we have charity care provided by churches, nonprofits, and health care provider charity policies. You could describe the last 30 or 40 years as the process of trying to fix the patchwork quilt by sewing up the gaps a little bit at a time. Let me give you a couple of examples. In the late 1980s, Congress passed EMTALA, which requires emergency rooms to treat and stabilize patients even if they have no insurance. Providers accurately refer to this as an unfunded mandate. They have to provide care, but probably no one is going to pay them for it. But EMTALA helps fix the safety net. Then, in the 1990s, Congress passed COBRA, which gave employees the right to keep their health insurance after leaving or being fired and help protect employees against pre-existing condition exclusions. EMTALA and COBRA don't provide a broad safety net, but they're examples of a few attempts to fix the gaps in the patchwork as our system has evolved. On the employer-provided insurance market, the last several decades have been an ongoing three-way negotiation between providers, payers, and employers, with constantly shifting leverage. Insurers push down doctor rates, and when the doctors eventually push back, the insurers have to raise premiums on the employers, who eventually push back, and then the insurers have to chop at reimbursement rates again. 
This constant negotiation led to the rise of HMOs in the 90s as a way to control rising healthcare costs each year. As we discussed earlier on this album, insurers tried to control healthcare costs by approving in advance what they'd pay for, requiring that doctors and patients get pre-authorization for medical procedures. This was so unpopular that hatred of HMOs made its way into pop culture of the time, like the 90s movie As Good As It Gets, starring Helen Hunt and Jack Nicholson, where awful HMO denials are what ultimately brings them together romantically. The movie The Rainmaker, starring Matt Damon, was about a lawsuit against a fictional health insurance company that had set up a policy of denying all first requests for insurance in order to save money. Matt Damon sues the company on behalf of a cancer patient who dies after he's denied treatment. The next major event is Obamacare in 2010, which was an attempt to fix the patchwork once and for all by creating an insurance safety net. Obamacare did this several ways, by requiring that employers of a certain size provide health insurance to employees, by creating national exchanges on which people could buy insurance, by making it illegal to exclude people from prior existing conditions, by expanding Medicare and encouraging the expansion of Medicaid to more people, and by imposing a tax on people who refuse to buy insurance. Obamacare did one more thing that's pretty important. It required that health insurers spend 85% of their revenue on paying claims. By requiring 85% of revenue go to pay claims and capping profits at 15%. We're trying to incentivize insurers to pay claims. In other words, to achieve Goldilocks utilization. But Obamacare originally intended to fix the patchwork by creating universal access to private insurance has now become one more patch in a sea of patches. Legal challenges, gaps in Medicaid expansion, difficulties in the rollout, and political upheaval have rendered Obamacare a jumbled mess a new patch that helps some patients, but one more perpetuation of the highly fragmented system. And this is where we find ourselves now. An 8,000-headed hydra, indeed. This has been the 10-Minute Health BizCast, broadcasting from Nashville, Tennessee. Thanks for joining us.